Let us pray. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went up not to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified. Mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Today is Palm Sunday, and of course we started the day with that triumphant procession saying, Hosanna to the King of David, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it seems as the service goes on and we get to the passion that everything goes off track, or does it, or does it? It's not the triumphal entry that the people of God from the Old Testament, the Hebrews, expected. And it's not the triumphal entry, if we're honest, that we would expect. We have the advantage of seeing it from our side of the cross, from seeing that this is the beginning of Christ's triumph. But as we come to the end of that passion reading, it sure looks dark, doesn't it? As we come to the end of the service today and go into Holy Week, it gets darker and darker still. We have those two readings today that drastically contrast the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and then the passion of our Lord being raised upon the cross. In some ways, the two couldn't be more different. The first is in the style of a Roman victory parade, what the Romans called a triumph. It was a well-known thing in the ancient world that when you conquered another territory, you would come in as the reigning king, and before you were the enslaved members of that conquered country, bound in shackles. And then you, there would come the uh, opposing leader ahead of you, bound in shackles, sometimes in a cage. And the procession in Rome would go down that triumphal way up to the steps of the Senate where that captor, the, Roman, the, the opposing general that had been conquered, would be executed in front of the crowds. That was the triumph as envisioned by man. That was the triumph that was typical in the ancient society that Jesus lived in. And yet Jesus comes in not riding a horse, not in a chariot grand, but riding a donkey. And of course he comes in and ends up not sacrificing someone else, but sacrificing himself. You see, the two readings actually fit wonderfully together in God's plan though they're not what we expect. Long before Jesus was ever born, God had this plan from the beginning of time. But we see it clearly illustrated in the prophet of Isaiah's words in our first reading today. Did you catch it? Did you catch that some 545 years before Christ, God prophesied that this would happen to his servant? 
that this was the future of God's servant for God's people, for us as God's people on this side of the cross. The servant songs found in Isaiah are about the servant of God, a bond servant, a slave, someone that's totally devoted to God with his heart. And there's actually four of them throughout Isaiah. We're not going to get into all of them today. It's already a lengthy service. But just for your reference, if you're one that that keeps track of these things, the first one's found in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. And that talks about the servant who's given as a covenant for his people. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. The second servant song is in Isaiah 49, 1 through 13. And it talks about the servant of God being given as a light to the nations. We read it during uh, the uh, Epiphany season because it talks about how Jesus is the light to the Gentiles. The third servant song, that the servant will be given as a model of obedience. It's in Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11. And then finally, we come to the fourth servant song, the most explicit one, the one that we read as our first reading from the Old Testament today, that the servant of God would be given as a sacrifice. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. So what were the Hebrew people expecting? Well, turn with me to Isaiah, to that first reading. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Well, so far so good, right? What do we expect of heroes and kings? High and lifted up, exalted. The hero to come save us. Verse 14, though, reads this way. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Wait, what? What? What's going on here? Disfigured? Marred? Beaten? Many kings astonished or shocked? Wait, why? If the passion that we just read from Luke's gospel is not shocking, then I don't know what is, or we've become too familiar with it. And yet we see here in Isaiah that this is foretold because it's unexpected. It's meant to be. It's meant to be shocking. It's gruesome. It's a terrible thing that the servant is predicted to endure. It's such a terrible thing that people will reject it and turn away, right? And I don't know about you, but every time I read the accounts through Holy Week, because we go through each gospel and read the different accounts, there comes a time when it seems too much, right? You you get emotionally invested into what's going on with Jesus. How can they do this to Jesus? How can people be so cruel? Um, One of the things that I brought out today is the icon of extreme humility. 
And icons are a tradition from the Eastern Church, but they actually also occur in Anglican churches, going back to our ancient roots. And here's the icon of extreme humility. It's a bit revolting, isn't it? If we're honest, a man beaten, and of course this doesn't even depict, depict the fullest extent of his beating, right? But a man who seems to be broken, a man who takes on extreme humility. I opened the package this week as it came in the mail, and um, one of the ladies from Gethsemane was here, and she took a look at it and said, oh, that's terrible. And I wasn't thinking, but I should have said, yeah, it is. And that's the point. It's terrible. It's gruesome. It's shocking. It's true. Revulsion is predicted, however, even in Isaiah. Look at 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. You see, St. Paul was right when he writes to the church in 1 Corinthians 22-24, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ gave the power to become children of God. So why are we revolted? I think for a couple reasons. First, it's not how we expect heroes to act. Heroes are not supposed to be men of sorrows, are they? Heroes are supposed to be men of triumph. John Oswald, scholar that I was reading this week in preparation, says this. He says, we are repelled by the face of self-giving and undefensiveness and appalled by the visage of one who would prefer to lose than to win for the wrong reasons. We're repelled by the face of self-giving and undefensiveness and appalled by the visage of one who would prefer to lose than to win for the wrong reasons. The whips, the jeering, the mocking. Why does Jesus take it? Why does Jesus go through with it? We cry out. Even in the mocking, there's, a hero, there's an expectation of the hero. You said the very words as we read that participatory passion narrative. If you're the Son of God, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, save yourself. If you're the hero, don't go through this. Why are you going through this? Why are you submitting to this? Do you see? It's not just mockery there. It's a crying out of the human heart for what a hero is supposed to be and what Jesus most assuredly at this point is not. Save yourself, we cry out. Heroes are supposed to be triumphant, not die what seems to be a pointless death, a death of a criminal. But there's another reason that tempts us to look away, I submit, to hide our face, as Isaiah puts it. 
And that reason is that we, you and I, we are the reason for this terrible display of violence towards another man. We are the reason for the gruesomeness. We are the reason for the cross. It's not a pointless death. It's a planned one out of love for you and me, but you and I in our rebellion are the cause of it. And that should cause us to want to turn away too. We see that it's not God's fault, but ours. It's not the Romans or the Jews' fault, but ours. Isaiah prophesies this too in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Do you see what's going on there? We think it's God's fault. We think that God has abandoned this man, this guy that's going through all this stuff, this terrible stuff, must be because of something he's done, that God's punishing him. But Isaiah continues, it's very clear it's not that the servant has done something, it's that the served have done something. Verse 5, but he was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed if you go through the rest of the reading, there's a lot of verbs going on here depicting the agony. Pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded, oppressed, judged, stricken, and finally put to death. Why? John Heman later writes in the 1600s, the hymn that you all know is Ah, Holy Jesus, that Bach put music to, and he sums this up so very well by writing, Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. This was done because of us. Because of you and me, each strike, each wound done to him, done by the people that he came to save, done by the people that rebel against him, even in his act of saving them. Our selfishness, our lack of care, our rebellion, the rottenness that exists at our core to turn against God, our revulsion at the good, if we really get down to it as human beings, that is what inflicts this pain and that's what Isaiah says in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering of guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. And this is what Holy Week is all about. This is the core of the gospel of Christianity. 
It's easy to jump right from today to Easter, isn't it? We want to do that. We want to turn away. We want to hide our faces. We want to go to the celebratory time of Easter where we shout out, Hallelujah, He is risen. But that misses the point of our sin, and it misses the point of Jesus' death, and it misses the point of how much He loves us. It's not all about the conquering. It's about the self-sacrifice. He's flogged alone. He's judged alone. He suffers alone. He walks alone because we can never imagine his agony. But you and I are called to walk along with him in this. We're called to see just how much he goes through, just to what extent he loves you, friends. Few men would give their life for a righteous man, but Jesus gives his life for wicked men and women. He doesn't say no as the pain increases. He doesn't say stop. He says, not my will, but thy will be done. But he goes forth alone into Holy Week. And what's our response? Well, there's nothing we can do to pay. There's nothing we can do to make up for what Jesus does on our behalf. He's the hero, but not the one expected. He's the Savior, and you have no part in your saving. He loves you. Verses 10 through 12 sum up our passage from the Old Testament. Therefore, God says, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he's poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressor. Who's the transgressor? You and I. But he's made a way. Walk with him. Weep with him. Love him for what he did. Don't turn away from him. Don't hide your face from him. Don't jump from Palm Sunday to Easter. Go with him. See how much he loves you. Walk with him. See how much he pays for your sin. See how much he loves you. And then love one another as he loves you. Love with the rich love of the servant. Alone he goest forth into Holy Week. Let us pray for compassion. Amen.